Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, folks. So glad that you could join us. We have a guest today who's written a brand new book called Our Dying Planet, an ecologist view of the crisis we face. Professor Peter Sale is with us today, and one of the things that I found so interesting about his book is that it gives a very different view than what we hear sometimes from those who are um, sort of critical of the environmental movement who say, look, all you people who are talking about saving the planet, save your breath because the planet's going to be fine. The planet has survived through ice ages. The planet has survived other periods of time when carbon emissions were intense due to volcanic activity. So the planet will right itself. Don't worry about it. It's people that we've got to save. And the, Professor Sale is, is, has got a very interesting point of view in his book that I'm very excited to explore, and that is perhaps we are getting to a point where the Earth may not be able to right itself. Its resiliency may not be intact because of some of the activities and some of the environmental impacts that humans are having. So I think this is a really critical point of view to explore. And uh, Peter, I'm so glad that you're able to join us on Go Green Radio today. I'm really happy to be here, Jill, and I'll look forward to this conversation. Well, you know, I... I I have to say, the, the title of your book is at first alarming, you know, Our Dying yeah, Planet, yeah. and yet you have a lot of hope and a lot of optimism in your book that we're going to explore. But let's talk about, uh, from the very genesis, what is it that prompted you to write this book to begin with? I, I think what prompted me to write the book was I got scared. Um, I have worked for my entire research career. I've worked on coral reefs. And coral reefs are probably the most threatened ecosystem on the planet. And in fact, in the book, I say they're going to disappear uh, within the lifetime of uh, our children and our children's children. Um, and that's an enormous statement and a frightening future. Uh, so I got scared. I began to realize that people, by and large, even if they accepted that we were having impacts on the planet, they did not realize the extent, and they did not see the whole picture. They tended to look at single parts of it. They thought about pollution, or they thought about climate change, or they thought about deforestation <clears throat> or overfishing. And in each of these things, you could look at the little problem and think how serious it was, but it's manageable. 
we have a very big problem, and it is a problem that we are not yet <clears throat> coming to grips with in the way that we need to. And so I was scared, and that's why I wrote it, and that's why I gave it the title I gave it. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, and when I say dying planet, I'm, I'm not talking about the Earth ceasing to exist in some way. I mean, obviously that isn't happening. But um, if you think back... If, if you're able to let your mind go back uh, <clears throat> 250, 300 million years ago to the end of the Permian, uh, the end of the Permian was an amazing time. There was a mass extinction event uh, that went on for thousands of years, and during that mass extinction, 90% of species disappeared. We came very close to ending the experiment with life, and if that had happened, there wouldn't have been people, there wouldn't even have been dinosaurs and a whole bunch of other things that evolved after the Permian. It could happen again. Um, and the seriousness of the situation is one that we need to appreciate. Uh, now, do I think it's going to be that bad? I'm hoping it isn't going to be that bad, and most of the projections don't make it quite as bad as the Permian, but we are in the middle of the sixth mass extinction. There have been five previous ones. We're in the middle of the sixth, and we're causing it. We're changing the, the climate at a rapid pace, and if you read uh, Jim Hansen's book, you know, The Climate Scientist, um, his recent book uh, called Storms of My Grandchildren, which I think is a beautiful title, uh, he's quite frightening because he thinks that we could enter into what he calls runaway climate change, where we change it enough that it starts taking over and processes over which we have no control mm -hmm. jump in and start making things get even worse. So there are there are reasons to be concerned, and that's what drove me to write the book. I want people to understand better how serious the situation is, and I also want them to understand that we, not only do we have the power to change the earth, we have the power to change our behavior, and if we change our behavior in the right ways, we have the power to achieve a good future for us and a good future for the the, the natural environment that supports us. Mm -hmm. And we are going to go into that. I, I want our listeners to look forward to that point in the interview because we are going to talk about some things that we as individuals and some things that we as society can can do about this that are uh, offered in your book. I want to go to your area of expertise, which is the coral reefs. You know, a lot of people really don't know if you don't live near an ocean or you're not into marine biology, a lot of people don't realize what's happening with the coral reefs. Give us some background as to what's going on with that ecosystem. Okay, okay. Uh, first of all, let me say I think coral reefs are the most marvelous environment on Earth. I've been very privileged to be able to be paid to do my work, to do my science in a system which is absolutely delightful to work in. Um, that's why I've always worked there. And that's one of the reasons why I would hate to see them disappear. Coral reefs are, first of all, there are so many things that are marvelous about coral reefs. Uh, they, are, they are the richest ecosystem 
on the planet. Um, depending on how you measure richness, uh, I have to qualify. People who know about rainforests know that they've got more species than coral reefs do, but most of their species are insects. And insects are very nice, but, you know, there are lots and lots of beetles in the world. <laughs> coral reefs have got more variety at the level of phylum, at the level of order, uh, not, not at the level of species. Um, on a coral reef, you can find representatives of all but two or three of all the animal phyla that live on Earth. You can't yeah. do that in a rainforest. So they're, they're, they're amazing. Uh, biologically. They're, they're important biologically. They support 25% of the species in the ocean. Now, many of those species can live off a reef, but many of them can't. And with the disappearance of reefs, you can lose a large amount of the species that live in the ocean. And that's a serious phenomenon. They're also very important for people. Um, coastal populations throughout the tropics use their reefs for food. Uh, they frequently have fishing as their only form of employment, and fishing feeds the family and then provides the money to buy the other things the family needs. So they're very important in that way. In many uh, tropical countries, coastal tourism is a primary develop, uh, generator of GDP, Throughout the Caribbean Basin, over 50% of GDP comes from coastal activities, chiefly tourism, secondly fishing. And these things are driven by the reefs that are off the, off the shore. Um, those reefs also provide important protection for the shoreline. All the hotels sit there. Uh, sometimes they get damaged in hurricanes, but believe me, without reefs, they would be damaged more severely by hurricanes. So there's an enormous unmeasured value in shoreline protection. So, mm. so they are tremendously valuable economically as well as biologically. Now, we've been hammering away at reefs ever since we sort of started building coastal populations. Reefs are, are a remarkably fragile ecosystem. They require clean water. They can't tolerate nutrients in high amounts. They live in what is a veritable desert. Uh, many people don't realize that the tropical ocean is, is very nutrient poor. Uh, and yet, coral reefs are the ecosystem that has the highest productivity in the world and it compares to the productivity of intensively farmed uh, sugarcane. Uh, nothing rivals it in terms of the rate of production. Uh, so they're, they're really quite amazing uh, uh, systems. Um, now, we've been hammering away at them for a long time as I'm sort of getting around to saying we've been overfishing them, we've been polluting them, we've been building things on the coastline that inappropriately interfere with how they function, interrupting water flow, or worst of all, clearing away mangrove forests on the coast so you can have a beach and a hotel, and many of the reef organisms require the mangrove in their juvenile life take away the mangroves, those organisms suffer. So we've been hammering away at reefs 
in lots of ways for a very long time. With climate change, we have introduced, uh, we've sort of upped the ante, if you like. Climate change is warming sea surface temperatures, and corals can't tolerate the warm water. And secondly, climate change, because of the CO2 dissolving from the atmosphere into the ocean, that CO2 is making the ocean very slightly more acidic. Mm -hmm. And when you shift the pH of the water, you make it more difficult, more energetically demanding for those organisms that produce their skeletons out of calcium carbonate to actually manufacture their skeletons. And, of course, corals depend on the ability to create their skeletons out of calcium carbonate. And that's the way they build a reef. Um, so we are, uh, by ocean acidification, we are causing the corals to grow more slowly and to recover more slowly when they're damaged. And then because of warming, we are killing them off. One of the things that corals do when they get stressed, whether it's from temperature or pollution or something else, one of the things they do is they bleach. And we call it bleaching because they turn this ghostly white color. Um, what they actually are doing is getting rid of symbiotic algal cells which live inside their tissues. Mm -hmm. These algal cells are essential to the high rate of metabolism of the corals. These algal cells also contain all the color of the corals. So when the corals are stressed, they push out their algae, they turn ghostly white. If the stressful conditions last for a couple of weeks or so, then they start to die. Wow. And, and so climate change is causing this mass bleaching and mm -hmm. mass death. Um, and it happens, typically what happens is you have summertime and an El Nino mm -hmm. so that the temperatures are extra warm and suddenly the coral goes white. I see. And this has happened around the world. Well, Peter, we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to touch on what you call uh, the canary in the coal mine, that coral reefs are kind of the environmental canaries in the coal mine, and how that, what's happening with them, translates to what's happening in other ecosystems. So, folks, don't go away. There's much, much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. 
Are you a real sports fan? Get ready to talk football and anything else sports with Kwame Lasseter, formerly with the Arizona Cardinals, San Diego Chargers, and St. Louis Rams. Kwame's got the experience, so he's prepared to talk sports with you every week on Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk. It's on the Voice America Sports Network every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. Get ready for unpredictable fun and sometimes a sarcastic look at the world of sports. That's Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk on the Voice America Sports Network. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want. Invest where it makes the most sense. Listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa, where America learns to invest. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us if you're just tuning in. Our guest today is Professor Peter Sale, author of a brand new book called Our Dying Planet, an ecologist's view of the crisis we face. And just before we went to commercial break, um, Professor Sale was talking about his lifelong work with the coral reefs and the danger that that ecosystem is in. In your book, Peter, you've talked about coral reefs as the canaries in the environmental coal mine and i'd love for you to talk about what you mean by that and what you see coming in terms of our delicate environment beyond the coral reefs okay good joe yes the canary in the coal mine you know the 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 phrase comes from a practice which uh, endured in uh, coal mines for many many years and i believe in britain it only got uh, terminated um, yeah, a few, you know, a couple of decades ago. Um, there's a problem in coal mines with uh, leakage of methane, uh, and you can get explosive situations and you can get anoxia, and it's quite dangerous for the miners. And long ago, coal miners in Europe learned that uh, if you took a canary into the mine with you, the canary was much more sensitive to poor air than than the miners were, and when the canary falls down, it's really time to get out of the mine. Um, so that's where the the expression comes from, and in a sense, coral reefs are the canary for the rest of the world. They're giving us a message. Uh, coral reefs are particularly sensitive environments. Um, they are, I talk about them in the book as being uh, majestically improbable or, or magnificently improbable. They they require such narrow conditions in order to flourish. They have got to have clean water. 
They have got to have shallow water. They have got to have good oceanic water of ocean salinity. They can't deal with brackish water. Um, They have got to have warm weather. Uh, They've got to live in the tropics. They can't live outside the tropics. Um, But on the other hand, it can't be too warm or they get stressed as well, as we were talking about previously. So they're... The existence of the coral reef is entirely dependent on the flourishing activity of the corals because they build the rock that becomes the structure which all the other organisms on the reef use. If the corals fail, you end up with a lot of erosion going on. This structure becomes a a relatively smooth, featureless limestone bench um, it doesn't support vast numbers of the species that require a living reef in order to exist. So they're very, very delicate, and here we are watching them go into a situation where uh, they're on their way out. Uh, that, to my mind, is a very important warning to us, um, even apart from wishing desiring, hoping that we can save barrier reefs, uh, save reefs. Um, I hope that we can use what's happening to reefs to wake ourselves up to how seriously we are impacting the rest of the world because what is happening to reefs now um, is happening uh, slightly less obviously in lots of other environments and the two the deterioration of the natural world which we are causing is less evident in these other environments, but the reefs tell us, look around you, look at what you're doing. It's exactly the same as as drawing attention to the plight of the polar bear in the Arctic. That's another, um, I would say, probably the second most threatened uh, ecosystem in the world. Um, the rate of change in the Arctic at the moment is is exceedingly rapid, and uh, we don't know what the outcome is going to be because we've never seen the Arctic warm up that quickly. But mm-hmm. it's quite likely that the outcome isn't going to be good because when things happen quickly, organisms don't have a chance to adapt. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, the problem we're facing at the moment. So that's where the... the uh, idea of the the canary in the mine uh, comes from. Um, That's a great analogy. And you know, in the book, you also talk about the fact that our planet, you know, from purely human-centric point of view, which, you know, isn't necessarily the way we always want to think about our planet, but, you know, you talk about how the planet provides human beings with both goods and services. And a lot of people are very familiar with the goods that the the earth provides us, you know, water, wood, food, clean air, you know, all of these things. But sometimes we neglect to think about the services that the earth provides us in terms of, of making the planet uh, comfortable, inhabitable, and, and we don't often place a value on those services the same way we do as the goods. And I'd love for you to talk to us about some of the important services that the planet provides for human beings and how those are somewhat in jeopardy based on the climate change that we're seeing. Okay, okay. Uh, before I do that, let me say something about the goods, because one of the things that concerns me, and, and this comes from 
teaching over many, many years. Um, one of the things that concerns me is that we in the Western world, particularly those of us who live in big cities, are becoming more and more isolated from the natural world and less and less aware of how the natural world sustains us. Um, we think the food comes from the supermarket. We think the wood comes from the, the lumber yard, or we don't even buy wood. We go and buy ready-made furniture, you know, uh, or we buy ready-made houses. We don't think of the wood as coming from the forest. We don't think of the food as coming from the farms and the ocean and all the places that the food comes from. Uh, in fact, in the book, I talk about our Western civilization as a big, fluffy duvet, and we're all huddled underneath it, lovely and warm and snugly, and quite unaware of what's going on in the world around us. Um, so with that proviso, the, I think we are more aware of the supply of goods, but we are becoming less aware of it than we might be, and I think we need to be more aware of it. Um, when it comes to services, the lack of awareness of the services provided by the natural world uh, is is amazing. Um, we don't build these the value of these things into our economy at all, and the services are are really quite profound. Um, the the sorts of things I'm talking about uh, as services um, are the uh, the provision of uh, clean water. Uh, not just the provision of water that we're going to drink, but the provision of clean water, the process of keeping the water clean, uh, the process of keeping the air clean, the, the process of ameliorating the climate, um, making it less harsh than it would other be, otherwise be. Uh, you take away forests and trees and plants and the, you, you turn into a desert very, very quickly. I mentioned earlier how coral reefs provide coastal protection. Mangrove forests do the same thing. Um, this coastal protection can amount to hundreds of millions of dollars in the event of a serious uh, storm. Um, and those dollars are never even thought about by people. You know, you, you, mm -hmm. you deal with what is there, not what would be there if the natural world was different. So uh, the typical uh, evaluations of, of um, tip, typical estimates of the value of um, the, the goods and services that uh, the earth provides are, are well in excess of the, the trillions of dollars that make up the, the world economy in a year. Um, there's way more than that in the in the services that are provided by the natural world. Well, and I think you see that, you know, when, when some people don't realize why some environmental groups are so invested in things like saving wetlands, you know, and, and there are those who would look at the land that makes up the wetlands and say, gosh, you know, if we could build a bunch of houses there, this would be the value of that land. Yes. But what they don't realize is that the wetlands itself provides a valuable service, for instance, carbon sequestration, that provides a global service that you know, it, it just right now isn't valued. It doesn't have a market value. And so we can't say, oh, no, you know, that carbon sequestration is worth so much more than the value of the 
of the homes that we could build on that land. And that disparity between the ability to place a dollar amount, I think oftentimes is what uh, tips the scale in terms of preservation of those services of that particular real estate versus the, you know, the quick hit, the short term value. That, that, that's true. And there's another related thing, which is very important. We've built our economies, and I'm, I'm not talking specifically about the American or Canadian economies. Some, uh, all economies do this. We have built our economies in which we have very cleverly undervalued the things that are provided by the natural world, mm-hmm. and we've undervalued the cost of the damage done to the natural to the natural world. So mm-hmm. typically, a piece of land has no value until somebody builds something on it or does something to it. Then it has value in terms right. of a uh, housing estate or something like that. The land itself is not considered to have any value. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it has, you know, somebody owns it and sells it to you, but uh, the value of so-called unimproved land is typically much lower. The taxes on it are lower. It's it's considered almost without value compared mm-hmm. to land with buildings on it. Right. Um, that is very short-sighted. Similarly, we build our economies in such a way that the the person who, for example, operates a logging activity and harvest wood from the forest, they pay a small royalty for the privilege of using the forest. Um, The long-term damage that is done to that forest, if the logging is not done in a sustainable way, is absorbed by who? By everybody. That's right, Peter. Nobody records it, whereas the person who got all the wood out makes the money of the value of that wood. Right. We're going to take a quick commercial break, Peter, but uh, when we come back, I want you to pick up right where you left off. Folks, there's so much more Go Green Radio, so don't go away. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back in just a moment. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. 
Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations, who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, we're, our guest today is Professor Peter Sale. He's the author of a new book called Our Dying Planet, An Ecologist's View of the Crisis We Face. It's absolutely brilliant. He's, he's a fantastic guest. And if you've missed part of the show or if you've made it through all of this with us and you want to recommend this show to your friends, don't worry, we're syndicated on the Green Living Channel of Voice America, and you can catch a, a rebroadcast of this show next Tuesday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Pacific Time, noon to 1 on the East Coast. And so if you just go to voiceamerica.com, click on the Green Living Channel, that's where you can find a rebroadcast of this show next Tuesday. Before the break, Peter, you were talking about how we tend to undervalue the services that the certain pieces of real estate of the earth provide us and in doing so oftentimes don't utilize uh, our real estate uh, that we have on this planet well. I want you to finish the thought that you had going there. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jill. Uh, I think I can finish this up uh, quite quickly by simply saying we need to um, realign our thinking about the relationship between people and the earth. Um, we need to be thinking in terms of being good stewards of the earth, taking care of the earth, and nurturing the earth so that the earth is available uh, and continuing to provide the benefits that it provides for our children and our children's children. It's still self-interest, but it is a different approach to the approach we tend to have at the moment, which is that we somehow are in charge and we own it. And we don't own it. And uh, every time we take fish out of the ocean or take uh, trees out of the forest or take crops off the land, we have benefited from what the earth is capable of giving us. And if we're capable of benefiting from it, we should be capable of taking care of the system so it continues to do that. 
and uh, and I think if we had that better attitude, uh, a lot of our problems would get ameliorated because we would start recognizing that it is in our self-interest to look after the earth, which really does sustain us. Well, you know, a lot of our listeners are parents and grandparents, and they are into both Go Green Radio and the nonprofit organization that I founded back in 2002 called the Go Green Initiative, which is an environmental education program. Um, and, and it's for that very reason. They realize that protecting the environment is one more way of expressing their love and concern for the children in their lives. Um, and that it's not enough to prepare our children for the future, but like I say, uh, oftentimes, we have to prepare the future for our children. And one of the things that I found so interesting in the introduction of your book is how you touch on our education system and how it's becoming less and less effective in providing the general citizenry the necessary knowledge to deal with some of the ecological crises of the 21st century. In your opinion, Peter, how could our educational system improve so that students are better prepared to understand how to properly manage the goods and services of the planet that they will inherit? Well, there's two aspects to this question about education. First of all, the education of the citizens. Um, the media, including radio, but particularly the print media, um, and uh, television as well. Uh, and now we have Twitter and Facebook and a whole bunch of other things that are all contributing. It's a huge mishmash uh, there is a great tendency to focus on the spectacular, the, uh, particularly if there is something which is controversial. Let's get both sides of the argument. Uh, let's present these to people. It becomes very confusing. There are arguments that are well based on fact, and there are arguments that aren't. And putting opposing arguments, one of which is based on more solidly factual information together as if they're somehow equal mm -hmm. leaves the person who doesn't know the details already in a bit of a quandary. Do I choose this side of the argument or do I choose that side of the argument? And frequently people make the wrong choices not because they're willingly refusing to agree that we have some environmental problems, for example, but because they're more comfortable with that view and it seems like they're being given a choice. So mm -hmm. why not take the one you're more comfortable with? And uh, <clears throat> it's very comforting to believe that all is well with the world um, because <clears throat> then you don't have to worry about that and you can focus on other things to worry about. Um, so I think the media could do a much better job of presenting controversial topics in a way in which the, the degree of, of valid underpinning of information is demonstrated to people. And, and then people would, would be able to say, well, the, here's an argument, and gee, look at the support it has. And here's another argument that doesn't have so much support. Maybe this one with more support actually has more merit. They're still free to choose, but at least they're choosing in a more informed way. And that's one thing I think uh, the media could do a better job of. Media should not be just about selling time or space 
on on the on the outlet. It should be more about actually informing people. Um, when it comes to the more formal teaching in the in the schools and the universities, yes, I think one of the funny things is at a time when our understanding of how the natural world works is really becoming more and more important because we're powerful enough to be changing it. Um, at the very time that that's happening, there's a de-emphasis in the in the educational system of the science of ecology. Um, there are people out there who believe that the only cutting-edge science in the life sciences is at the molecular level. Now, molecular biology has made wonderful strides, and there are some very exciting things happening, and there are some very exciting molecular tools that actually enable us to learn about ecological systems. But to pretend that all we need to know these days is, is molecular biology is, is very unfortunate. Um, I think ecology is a complicated science, and it is a science which has been very easy to dismiss. There, there are people out there who think that ecologists are sort of people who like nature and they wander around with a notebook and pencil and maybe a pair of binoculars and <laughs> and they don't really do real science because they're not in a lab with expensive equipment doing complicated things. Um, I, I discovered in teaching a course um, in about 19, uh, 2005, I was teaching this course for the first time to advanced undergraduates. They were mainly seniors and juniors. They were mainly biology majors. They were mainly interested in ecological subjects, which is why they took the course. And I found the class split more or less into two more or less equal-sized groups. There was one group was committed conservationists, but they were treating the science more as a religion than a science. They didn't really understand the, the science that was driving the conclusions they reached. They, they reached those conclusions more or less as a, as, a, as a religious commitment to the idea of conservation. Um, now, that's fine. They're still good conservationists, but they aren't furthering understanding of why it's necessary to conserve. Um, the other half of the class were the students who who knew that uh, when you talk to ecologists, it was important to talk about certain things, and you learned them really well, and you put them back on your exams, and you got good grades, and you went on well, but your private life had nothing to do with it. What you were learning in class was an esoteric thing that you learned in order to pass the course, Maybe you learned it because you were interested in it, but it did not apply to the real world. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought we needed to do a better job of reaching both of those groups of people because this science really does reach the real world, and it's important. You know, well, the, the, and the you thing know, I love the, about ecology <laughs> is that it teaches a mindset of interconnectivity, which seems so intuitive. It seems so... Um, 
you know, logical, cause and effect, ripple right. effect. If you, you know, have a certain impact on the water, it run, runs downstream, you know, it's as simple as the wind blows and the water flows. Well, and that, it's, that, it's that understanding should yeah. shape behavior as yeah. well. And that if we know these things, well, then we should act in a certain way. Unfortunately, we've got to take a quick, quick commercial break. But okay. when we come back, we have much more with Professor Peter Sale, author of the new book, Our Dying Planet, An Ecologist View of the Crisis We Face. So folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Healing occurs from the inside out. To awaken and activate the body's healing mechanisms, your emotions and thought patterns must be addressed and aligned with your truth. These concepts are discussed in detail on The Light Within, Awakening the Inner Healer, with host Joan Jacobs. We'll introduce you to a new way to interpret and address your body's language of symptoms and how to turn disease into a platform of profound personal growth. Tune in to The Light Within every Monday at 10 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Go inside the world of PR with PR Insider, hosted by public relations expert Maureen Kettis. Maureen will speak to the world's highest profile PR pros from the fields of marketing, advertising, and sales. And PR Insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests. Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, us.cision.com. Listen every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, we're joined today by Professor Peter Sale, author of a new book called Our Dying Planet, An Ecologist View of the Crisis We Face. Peter, I'd love for you to make sure that all of our listeners know how to reach you and how to get a hold of your book uh, before we finish up the show. So why don't you go ahead and give us your website? Okay, that's good, Jill. It's real simple, www.petersalebooks.com. And that's one word, Peter Sale Books, and it's S-A-L-E. No S on the end of it, no funny spelling, real simple, Peter Sale Books. 
petersalebooks.com. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. All right. Well, check that out, folks, because uh, Peter just has a wealth of information um, and has such a wise perspective about what we're seeing uh, unfolding here at the beginning of the 21st century. You know, there's something in your book that you mentioned. You have a whole chapter on reducing our use of fossil fuels, and you, you go through a number of different technologies and fuels that we're looking at, but something that's very, very in the headlines right now is the tar sand uh, project that is up in, in your neck of the woods in, in Canada. Talk to us for a few moments about uh, that technology and some of the environmental risks that are associated with that method of, of getting oil. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Um, the, the, the tar sands, first of all, you, you need to, your listeners need to understand that the Canadian reserves of oil are as big as Saudi Arabia's but ours are all in tar sands and tar sands is this glurpy stuff that uh, doesn't flow very easily it's also energetically very expensive to get out of the ground and get processed um, in as a comparison to take um, light crude out of the ground um, it takes about one barrel of oil energy to produce about 30 barrels of product so that's a good return on investment of, of energy. Mm-hmm. For for tar sands, it's one barrel of oil gets, uh, sorry, two barrels of oil get three barrels of product. So there's mm. hardly any improvement. So it's enormously expensive energetically, which means Canada's uh, contributions to greenhouse gases are are, are made bad because of it. <clears throat> Secondly. It uses a lot of water in the processing of it, and that water becomes contaminated uh, with things that there currently is no technology to uh, rectify. And so the the tar sands uh, production involves taking large amounts of water and putting them into ponds where they're contaminated and they stay forever. And, and I don't think Canada has that amount of water to just store away unusable into the indefinite future. Um, so I'm quite cr- critical in the book about the tar sands. Now, one of the reasons they're in the, in the news at the moment, of course, is, is the XL pipeline, mm-hmm. which is a proposal to uh, take the product from Alberta down to Texas. Um, it's very interesting that there is a protest. It's a protest by Americans who see that this pipeline is going to facilitate the exploitation of the tar sands. So if we don't have the pipeline, we slow down the exploitation, which is good for the planet. Um, one of the things that I discovered only two weeks ago, perhaps I'm slow, but some of the talk about the pipeline is all about energy security in the United States. And it's true that the the oil being generated at the moment is all being sold to the states, and we are a major supplier of oil to the U.S. Um, so the argument is we need to buy our oil from Canada, not from places where maybe governments are less friendly. Uh, it's now become apparent that the oil that is going to go down the XL pipeline, a large amount of it is going to be processed in Texas and shipped to Europe. Uh, there's no plan by the oil companies for all this oil to feed into the American market. We're using American uh, processing capacity uh, 
and Canadian raw materials to produce a product which the oil companies can sell in other parts of the world, um, which I think is very unfortunate. And it's another perfect example of us treating the land as a source of raw materials at no cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tar sands will still be valuable in the future if we need to extract them for oil for advanced uh, products. There's a large chemical industry based on oil. We don't need to extract them to burn for energy, mm-hmm. and and we shouldn't be doing it. Well, and it's interesting, you know, I, I talk to a lot of audiences when I go around and I give speeches and, you know, there's some people who will say, hey, we are not running out of coal and we're not running out of oil and we're not running out of natural gas. Why do we have to switch to alternative fuel sources? And I said, well, it's true. We still have a lot of these fossil fuels around, but we've, we're moving from an era of cheap to deep, from cheap energy from fossil fuels to uh, deep extraction or difficult extraction, which is going to drive the price up. So whether we switch to alternative fuels like sun, wind, and all of the others or not, energy is not getting any cheaper, folks, even if we exploit tar sands, even if we do deep water drilling for oil, even if we go deeper into coal mines, it's not going to make our energy cheap because all the cheap stuff We've gotten to already. (laughs) Exactly. So, so it's it's a radical change in people's thinking. Going from cheap to deep is the simplest way I can explain it. But energy is not getting any cheaper. You know, I want to end the show on a high note, though, because you do actually have a lot of optimism. I mean, your book is brimming over with "We can do this, folks." And I want you to end the show giving parents and grandparents out there reason to hope and reason to believe that human beings can take control of the situation, can do better um, for our children. Talk about that that piece of your book that okay. says we can preserve the Earth's equilibrium for the benefit of generations to come. I, I called the book Our Dying Planet uh, deliberately. Um, it's not dead yet. I don't want it to die. Um, and I hope that by writing the book, I will encourage uh, attitudes and actions that will make some of the predictions I talk about not come true. I would love for the world to still have coral reefs when my granddaughter is old enough to scuba dive. Um, I don't want them to disappear. Uh, I fear they're going to disappear. I think that the important thing to understand is we have a very big problem. It's a very serious problem. It has a number of ramifications, and we've touched on some of them today. Um, But it is a problem of our own making. And if we change our behavior in appropriate ways, We can ameliorate this problem, and we can move to a future which is better. And in the final chapter of the book, I sketch out, in sort of an allegorical way, I sketch out four possible futures for us. And the future I want to get to, I called it New Atlantis, the future I want to get to is a future of people living a very civilized life, uh, lots of culture, lots of toys, lots of electronic gizmos, all the things we like to have around us, but living that life in a sustainably managed environment. And this is possible. 
It's not easy to get there. We're going to have to make some very careful decisions. But we don't have to go back to the Stone Age. We don't have to live in mad, in mud huts. We don't have to eat rice and beans and nothing else. Um, we can have a future that is as exuberantly civilized as, as humans are capable of, and yet in balance with the planet. I love it. Uh, that's such a perfect message. And I, I thank you for writing the book. I thank you for, for being that optimistic and hopeful because it, I, I think that's going to lead others to, to feel the same way and to feel that we have some choices we can make to ensure that for our children and grandchildren. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. We're going to be back here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. So have a great week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.